Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there are at times, aren't there, certain voices within our community or our society which accuse the church of being too harsh, too demanding, too self-righteous, not gracious enough, not kind enough, oppressive. There are those in the church community that take these accusations to heart and desperately try to demonstrate to the world around them that no, 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 we're not that at all. Maybe you have seen these churches as I have, churches that have signs indicating their social wokeness, symbols in their windows or on their buildings that say we will welcome everyone, which of course is what every church does. Every church welcomes every sinner into its confines that they may hear the good news of the gospel, but what is meant when these churches say that is not that we welcome all to repent before the Lord and to cry out for mercy, for He will give it to them, to all who trust in the Lord. Salvation will come. You know what they're saying is we will not call people to repentance. We will not condemn people for their sin. We will not question their lifestyle or their identity. We will approve of it. We will support them. We will be kind to them. We will encourage them. That's what the church should be busy doing, shouldn't it? It shouldn't be calling people to repentance and faith. The church has no business being self-righteous because the history of the church is filled with the history of its failures. And so there are those also within our own community that consider the call to repentance unnecessary, unbecoming, and cruel. How do we deal with that? How do we understand that? How do we make sense of that as God's people? How do we, in the light of God's Word, not only explain to people the importance of calling sinners to repentance, but how do we make that call gracious, loving, kind, merciful, a testimony not of God's cruelty, but of His kindness? We have such a passage before us this morning, one that at first sounds to us as a passage full of cruelty, full of heaviness. God commands His King to kill women and children, infants, animals, everything. And then He rejects His King for having made a slight error. We might think to ourselves, how, hard, how can we ever consider this God to be gracious or kind? And yet if we listen to the story, we discover that it is precisely because of what God knows and what God does for our salvation that He does these things. That He does these things through Samuel, through Saul, as the prophet gives to Saul marching orders in our text after the debacle of the Philistine fight where Saul failed to destroy the Philistines as he should. Now the Lord comes again through His prophet Samuel to the king and says, listen, now I want you to kill the Amalekites. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill them all. 
The people of Amalek did indeed do harm to the Israelites. You can read about that in Exodus 17 and Numbers 24. You can read about how the Amalekites were particularly cruel towards the Israelites as they came into the land of Canaan, as they came into the promised land given to them by the Lord. The Amalekites came from behind on a, in a surprise attack, you might say, attacking the weakest and the most frail, the women and children of Israel, the Lord himself reminding Agag of what he had done. They had done cruelly against God's people some many, many years before. Now note that. Note that the Lord had noted what Amalek had done, but he hadn't dealt with them immediately. He had been patient with them. He had been careful with them. He had given them years, decades. You remember that that people wandered 40 years in the desert. You remember that that then the people had to come into the land of Canaan, that Joshua and the judges had to serve, and that now Samuel and Saul are ministering to the Israelites. It's been some time, decades, since Amalek treated Israel so cruelly. And the Lord now calls upon his king to minister justice in the life of this people, the Amalekites. The wickedness of this people placed them under the ban To borrow the language of Joshua chapter 6, you remember that when the Lord destroyed the city of Jericho, he said to the Israelites, that city is under the ban. You may not touch any of its wealth. You may not enjoy any of its blessings. It will lay there as a testimony to my power for all the world to see. All its inhabitants must die, save Rahab and her family. All of its animals must be destroyed. You may not take any of its gold or its wealth. You may not do as the nations of the world do as they harvest from their wars wealth. It was under the ban. Well, now a second time, the Lord places a people under the ban, under the most severe judgment, under the most powerful declaration of God in that time that this people was utterly deserving of condemnation. That they were a people that needed to be removed from before the face of God, from before the earth, from, from off the earth itself. And he gives to Saul this task. You are to execute this justice. You are to punish them for their sin. You are to show them the righteousness of their God. And Saul does it. He does it very well. As we will discover as we continue studying the book of Samuel, Saul is actually a very good military commander. He is very able at what he does. And here again, he carries out his tasks or his task magnificently. A well-organized military campaign is begun in which he also shows mercy to the Kenites. The Kenites were another family, another tribe of people that had shown mercy to the Israelites, that had been kind to the Israelites. And so Saul says to them, you do not deserve this judgment. We're not going to kill you because this isn't your judgment. This isn't falling on your head. You have been kind to the people of Israel. And so he allows them to escape, but he judges the Amalekites. And he defeats them profoundly from Havelah to Shur, we're told. He utterly wipes off the face of the earth, this people. Well, almost. He keeps the king. He keeps some of its wealth. He keeps its best animals, its most healthy livestock. 
but he executes the justice of God almost. Now, we might find ourselves already a little bit disturbed and troubled at the very thought of this passage. The focus of this chapter, of course, is on the failure of Saul, and we'll certainly talk about that shortly. But before we get to his failure, we might think to ourselves, was it even right for God to do this? This is the embarrassing aspect of our Bibles that we don't share too quickly with our neighbors or coworkers. If we're ministering to someone, if we're working with somebody at school, at college or university that we're sharing the gospel with, we're not likely to take them to 1 Samuel 15 and the story of God's judgment against the Amalekites as the place we want to explain to them the truth of God. Indeed, at a recent activity uh, I was involved with, and there was there also a United Church of Canada minister. That minister said to the assembled group there that, well, the Old Testament, also very much for passages like this, is not really the Word of God. We don't read that. That doesn't belong to the New Testament church, which is a church of love and of inclusion. She said, don't read that. Just read those passages that talk about God's love. And while we might wonder ourselves at such a thing, and we might not say it out loud, we certainly might struggle with the question of why does the Lord in this event do this to the Amalekites and then to Saul? Part of the answer to this question concerns how we view life. Because we are in our culture and society individualistic, and so we think of individuals as responsible for their own actions. You're not responsible for your parents' actions. You're not responsible for your children's actions. You're only responsible for your own. So we can't imagine why the Lord would kill an entire group of people that weren't alive when they did the cruel thing for which they are accused. How can this generation of Amalekites be responsible for that generation's rebellion against the Lord? Part of our struggle is also fueled by our aversion to the justice of God. The truth is that passages like this make us uncomfortable because this shows us something of who God is, a God who is so demanding in His righteousness, who is so perfect in His execution of justice, who is so cutting so hard that he makes us nervous. For if God does this to the Amalekites, if God condemns sin so powerfully and perfectly, if God wipes it off before before his face and off the face of the earth, then what hope have we? For we are no better than the Amalekites. We are no more righteous and no more able to stand before the thrice holy God than they were. If this is how God deals with sinners, then do any of us have any hope or help? And what we need to recognize, of course, is that our perspective on these things is more often formed not by the testimony of Scripture itself, but by our perception of how the Bible, how the Lord, our expectation for how God should deal with situations like this. We think God should be far more, in our mind, gracious than He is. He is actually far more gracious than we are, as we'll see. But we think, oh no, Lord, this is too cruel. This is too heavy. Even as we blame, of course, Germans for all of their events in World War II. You say, wait a minute, how do you blame Germans for all the events of World War II? They weren't alive when that happened. 
Why should they bear the mark or the stain or the responsibility of those things? We do that even with families, even a more close-knit situation where we say, oh yeah, you don't really know those people. You don't know what they're like. I, I knew their grandfather and he was just like that. And there is indeed a family trait, isn't there? There are characteristics that define people, that define a group of people. A group of people like the Amalekites and their rebellion against God. For that is what we need to really see, is that the Amalekites shook their fist in the face of God and said, we will not bow before you, we reject you and your claim upon us. Notice that the Lord was slow to anger. He did not judge the Amalekites immediately, but waited until now, giving them opportunity to repent of their sins. To repent in the face of God's grace. Notice that it is against the gospel that the Amalekites rebelled. The Exodus, you'll remember, was that glorious declaration of God and of His commitment to deliver all men from the bondage of sin and death. The deliverance of Egypt or Israel from Egypt was the gospel writ large. The nations heard, Rahab heard, we have heard what your God has done. We know that we cannot win. We cannot be victorious over you for your God is the living God. The nations had heard of this God and of His power and of His power to deliver from the chains of sin and death. And then the Amalekites said, but we will not serve this God. We will reject this God. We will condemn this God. We will hurt His people. We will seek to erase the Gospel. We will do war on the church so that the light of God's grace might be dimmed and diminished. It's no different than the world does today, is it? It's no different than those who rebel against the church today. It's no different than the intellectual leaders of our communities. It's no different than our government officials who make war against the church. Who oppose, maybe not the institution, maybe not the substance. They might not say, well, we disagree with your theology and you may not teach it. But they do war against it in so many ways. They undermine the Word of God, the will of God. They call what God says is wrong, right. They call what God says is right, wrong. They mock those who believe. They shout down those who claim Christ as Lord. They actively war against the church and against the gospel message. And when you fight against the Lord, when you pick a fight against the God who created heaven and earth, then you cannot complain when His fist crushes you. When His King comes and causes you to suffer for the choice you made. The King that God had appointed, Saul, was given the task. Indeed, his job among others is to execute justice against the enemies of God and of His people. And to lead His people, to lead all the world ultimately in the way of righteousness and peace. The king's job was to ensure that all men, the church and the world, both understood this simple truth that one, God cannot be rejected without consequence. But two, He delivers all who trust in Him by faith. So that we may find the death of the Amalekites an offense to our sensibilities. But if we have a problem with this passage, we have a problem with the gospel. For the gospel itself says, repent and believe. 
for you are under judgment of God's wrath. Flee from the wrath of the God who is righteous into the care of His Son, Jesus Christ. The call of the Gospel presumes the truth that God's justice will fall and sinners will suffer. That's why we ought to be motivated in our ministry to the world, to those loved ones, to those family members, to those friends that are unbelieving. We ought to say to them, flee from the wrath to come into the safety of the refuge of Christ. For His judgment is severe when it falls. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is not slow. But He is kind. And He gives all men opportunity to repent. But there's coming a day, there is come a day when the judgment falls, and when it falls, it falls with unrelenting ferocity. We may not like it, but not liking it doesn't make it less true. We may not like it because it reasserts the primacy and priority of our righteous God and of His justice over all of life. Yet it is precisely for this reason that we ought to be moved and to plead with those who do not know the Lord, repent and believe. Now we note that Saul, in his dealings with the Lord, does not learn this lesson as he ought. Though he is given the task of executing justice because God is a righteous God, in his own relationship with the Lord, he acts as one who is unrighteous. He thinks the judgment of God is for those wicked Amalekites, but not for the church, not for me. I'm preferred by God. I can sin and get away with it. Saul acts in a way that is contrary to the very gospel he's called to enforce. And he acts more like a worldly king, keeping the best for himself and keeping Agag as a trophy. And because of this rejection of the Lord's righteousness, because of this refusal of the king to promote the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord, God regrets having made Saul king. Sometimes that word is in other translations more graphically translated as repents which is a legitimate translation of that word in other instances. Regret's a good word here. And it's a word that is, only other fa- that is found only uh, at another time in Genesis chapter 6, when God is said to have regretted making man. And that connection, you understand, to Genesis 6 and to the flood and to the events there adds a severe condemnation. It it challenges us to see just how profound the failure of Saul was. To us, it may seem a minor thing. What did he do wrong? He took a few animals. He took a king. It can all be set to right very quickly. Just give the stuff back and kill the king. We're back to where we ought to be. But in a dramatic encounter, Saul confronts, Samuel rather confronts Saul. And Saul, instead of taking responsibility for his actions, does what we all do when we're confronted with our sins. Our instinctive natural result or response is to say, it's not my fault. No, 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 it's not me. My men did this. The people did this. And they did this to worship your God, Saul says. 
We didn't do this to make ourselves rich. We didn't do this to pad our own nest. No, we did this because we wanted to give the best to the Lord. Instead of owning his sin, Saul blames the nation, the people, blames Samuel, the prophet blames the Lord himself as the one who demands these sorts of things. We're only trying to make God happy, you see. And in many ways, he then here walks in the same footsteps as Adam in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Confronted by his sin, their man also said, it's not my fault, it's the woman you gave me. Saul says, it's not my fault, it's the people you gave me, it's the command you gave me, it's the responsibilities you gave me, but it's not my fault. It's the same thing we say when mom or dad comes to us and asks, what are you doing? And we're doing something wrong. It's the same thing that when a boyfriend or a girlfriend says, hey, what did you, what did you just, who did you just text? What did you just look at on your phone? And we know that we've done something wrong. And so we, we divert, we deflect, we dismiss, we diminish. We sin, we reject grace. We reject repentance. We reject faith. We need to see that. We need to understand that. Otherwise, we'll think that Saul's rejection by God seems too harsh, too cruel. Was this small failure of Saul's really so deserving of a massive condemnation? I mean, he did obviously fail, but generally he succeeded. It was an overall success. The Amalekites were killed. And it was easy enough to solve his failure, just kill Agag and give the money back. You keep in mind that in moments of great redemptive significance, there are always reminders to God's people that God is a righteous God. Gracious, yes, but gracious in His righteousness. That's why in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, we read about Achan and Achan and his family, his wife and his children, his animals, his tent. It was all stoned and burned. Think about when the ark will come out of Philistia back to Israel and Uzzah will touch it and die. Think about Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira who die for their small lie, their little white lie. Was it really so bad? Was Uzzah's touching the ark really so bad? Was Achan's destruction really necessary? It was just a garment. It was just a bit of gold and silver. Those moments all teach us that in these redemptive events where God's profound grace and goodness is poured out upon his people where there's an overflowing bounty of God's love we must never forget the righteousness of God and the command of God that we must obey that is certainly something that is going on here this is a a profound moment in the history of Israel a, a king has been appointed a king who ex, who's called to extend the kingdom of light over the face of the earth, who is called to extend the kingdom of God so that many join in worship and in service of God, who is to rule over a kingdom of steadfast love and of gracious blessedness, the kingdom of grateful devotion and obedience to the Father. This is what the king must do. This is what the king is called to do. Our king as well. To lead us in service. To show us the way. To help us glorify God in praise of his name. And that begins by teaching us to bend the knee in humble submission before the Lord. And what does this king do? This king says, but I will be selfish. I will not be a servant. 
I will make my name great, not the Lord's name. I will rule in a way that benefits me and the people that follow me, not the people who follow the Lord. And remember, this is not just an Israelite. This is not just a church member. This is not you or me that is doing these things. This is the king, the standard bearer, the defender of his people, the leader of righteousness. He's the one who was appointed to show the people the privilege and the blessing of being a servant of the Lord, even if it cost him everything. Better that the king suffer in service to God than that the king serve himself in service to his own goals. This is not the king, therefore, that Israel needed. Indeed, this is not a king who can stand upon the throne of Israel. A king who leads in wickedness and rebellion. A king who leads in devastation and judgment. The people needed a king who would sacrifice himself entirely to serve the Lord. To lead in righteousness and in obedience. Now truth be told, we don't always like having such a leader. If our society is any evidence, the natural man, our human instinct, is to seek out leaders that will do what we want. We vote for the guy that promises us the most toys, the most blessings and benefits. We do the same thing in our work, in our business, in our relationships. We look for jobs that will make us the wealthiest. We look for people who will make us the happiest. We try constantly to find ways to achieve the blessedness of this life by our own pursuits. We're not much different than Saul. And that's why we like guys like Saul. That's why we vote for guys like Saul. Because we don't always want a leader who is singularly focused on serving God. We don't want someone whose concern is not us, but the sovereign of heaven and earth. No, we want a boyfriend. We want a husband. We want a parent, a teacher who will bend a little. Do us a favor. Give us what we want. Let, it, let us slide when we make minor errors or mistakes. We want somebody in a position of authority that we can call and say, can you do me a solid? Can you do me a favor? I got this ticket. Can you make it go away? i got this problem. Can you solve it for me? That's the kind of leader we want. But the leader we need. The leader who alone can lead us into the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Who can bless with an eternal blessing. The only leader who can truly deliver us from the condemnation that we all deserve. That Amalek was under. That we're all by nature under. The only king that we can can truly receive deliverance from is the king who sets his face to the Father and says, I will obey not my will, but your will be done. Even, even when it means his death on the cross. If God is sovereign, and he is, then rebelling against him isn't wise for anyone. And we need then a king who will perfectly follow the will and word of our God and will take us in His arms and carry us into the place of blessedness, who knows our failings and loves us nonetheless and carries us by His word and will into a place of joy and blessing. We need a king 
who reflects the very character of our God. Samuel schools Saul on the God that he was called to serve. There's that lovely little prophecy, that word that echoes through Scripture in verses 22 and 23, which remind us that God is not interested in rote obedience, in outward expressions of piety, in dutiful doings, yet never having a heart committed in gratitude to the Lord. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You can come to church. You can put your money in the offering. If your heart's not in it, the Lord is not pleased. And willful rebellion is not a minor matter of, to this God. It's like worshiping another God. It's like serving another more appealing God. It's like rejecting the living God and shaking your fist in His face and saying, I'm not going to serve you. You're not worthy. And though Saul belatedly now ex- uh, confesses his sin, although with more excuses to be sure, yet the Lord's righteousness will not be so mistreated. And as Samuel leaves, Saul grabs his robe and tears it. There's a lovely possible image here. If Samuel was wearing a robe, as, as the Word of God taught, a robe that had tassels on it, Which tassels represented the commandments of God? A reminder to the wearer that they were to always walk in obedience to the Lord. Then it's possible that Saul grabbed one of these tassels, we might say grabbed a commandment of God, and tore it, ruined it, broke it, rejected it. And his failure then prompts a word from the prophet who says, so the Lord has rejected you. And then at Samuel or Saul's pleading, Samuel comes along to his offering, not in order to make Saul happier or to please the people, but to kill Agag. And our text ends with those awful words that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The word regret, of course, does kind of challenge us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Not just because we don't like the idea of God regretting anything, but because we believe, we know that God knows the end from the beginning, that God never needs to regret anything. He, after all, rules it all. He knew how Saul would end. Indeed, it was for this very reason that he chose Saul. He gave to Israel their choice. This is the kind of king you want. And I know, Samuel warned them, I know that this is going to end badly. And now the Lord says he rejects choosing Saul. Now it is worth noting that there is a vital distinction to be made that the Lord here does not reject the office of king. That's not what the Lord rejects. He doesn't reject that Israel has a king. He only regrets rather that Saul occupies that office. And his plan and purpose never really changes because he does not turn his back on his promises. Indeed, he already warns Saul through Samuel that there is another king chosen, a neighbor of his who is better than him. So that in the end, the Lord's promises would be fulfilled. The Lord's plan would be accomplished. Israel would receive the king of his choosing, a man after his own heart. And that indeed, Samuel's, or Saul's rather, removal of from the office of king was a part of God's plan to lead his people into a better place. That by rejecting Saul, 
The Lord was in fact blessing his people. We need to see that. We need to understand that that's what the Lord is here doing, lest we misunderstand God and hold him accountable to a standard that we impose upon him and then reject him for. To be sure, there is here a word of warning. Not that we might be rejected like Saul was. This is not a text that justifies the argument that believers can lose their salvation. Saul was a king, and as king, he was rejected by the Lord. But there's the warning. The warning is be careful who you serve. Be careful who you call king in your life. Be careful whom you follow and the goals that you set for yourself. The Lord may grieve over one and judgment will follow and you will find yourself suffering. Who would ever want to follow a king that leads us away from the Lord? The truth is we all do and we need to examine our hearts and we need to flee from such a king to the better king, Jesus Christ. Some of us need to hear that warning. We all need to hear that warning this morning. If we are pursuing a king of pleasure, if we are pursuing a king of popularity, if we are pursuing a king of power, then know that you are going against the Lord and that you will suffer if you persist in this way. For your king cannot bring you into green pastures. Only Jesus Christ can. But indeed, that's the very word of comfort of this text, isn't it? That is why we can speak of this text as a text displaying the love of God for his people and the gracious commitment of God to his church. So committed, so devoted to redeeming his people is our God that he will not leave them under the tyranny of so cruel a king as Saul. He removes this faithless king so that they might no longer suffer under his leadership, but might be blessed by a shepherd who will guide them into still waters. Oh yes, though the people had gotten themselves into this mess, Saul was their choice. The Lord delivered them from it. And he delivered them that he might give them a more excellent way. Indeed, God's ways are always better than our ways. His love is better than anything that we can find in this earth. We may think, as the world tells us, to walk with God is to walk with a God that is cruel, a God that is so narrow-minded, a God that's so exacting, a God that punishes people, makes people feel bad and guilty and shameful for things that are natural and good. Why would you follow that God? Because He is the God of grace because he's the God of mercy, because he's the God of love, because he knows what's best for me, and because he has shown his commitment to me by his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we all ought to live in grateful devotion to this Lord. And we ought to call others to repentance who do not. The call to repentance, you understand, the call to repentance that is issued by the church into the lives of its members is not an exercise in oppression It is not an exercise in self-righteousness or may not be. It is a calling of sinners to flee into the arms of Jesus. Because there they will be received, there they will be forgiven, and there they will be blessed. It is not cruel to say to a sinner, what you're doing is wrong, repent. Any more than it is cruel to say to someone who is suffering from an illness, there's something wrong with you, you need to see a doctor. 
Oh, that doctor may result, that doctor visit may result in chemotherapy, may result in painful surgery, may result in, 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 in rehabilitation that's difficult. But better being freed from judgment and living in freedom before the Lord than to suffer under the weight and destruction of the cancer that is sin. We may not like it, but it is loving. It is loving when you know that Jesus Christ is the King and that He leads us not into places of misery, but into places of joy. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace towards us. We thank You that You give to us so great a King, a greater King than anything that we could choose. Indeed, Lord, we daily choose the wrong Kings. We pursue the influencers of Instagram. We pursue the popularity of that high school student. We pursue, Lord, fame and success amongst our peers. But Heavenly God and Father, there is a more excellent way when we surrender all and embrace Jesus Christ, for in Him we find not only a pathway that is straight and narrow, but we find the forgiveness of sins. We find the forgiveness that we desperately need. So help us all again, Lord, today to renew our commitment to Jesus Christ. And if we have a brother or a sister, if we have a friend or a family member who's living in sin, help us to gently, kindly, graciously, but persistently and powerfully say unto them, repent and believe. Flee from the wrath that is to come and find your rest in Jesus. Join us in praising so great a God and glorious. And to our neighbors and co-workers who don't know you. To any of those among us today who don't know you. May they see that you are not the God that they've been told about. That you are not the cruel God that they have been. Or that they have heard explained and expressed within our culture and society. You are the God of great grace. And may they find their rest in you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.